Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 44 of the Essential X Lapsed, where I just have one question for you. Who's ready for filler? Because <laughs> we've got some filler today, my friends. Uh, today we are going underground, and uh, we're going to be dealing with a couple of baddies who I really don't care about. So uh, let's get right into it. <laughs> this is X-Men number 34, had a July 1967 cover date. The story's called War in a World of Darkness. Written by Roy Thomas, with art by Dan Adkins. Now, uh, Adkins is uh, filling in for both our penciler and our anchor, it would appear. At least that's how the credits read. Letters by Jay Feldman, so no Cymec, no Rosen. It's a weird day here, isn't it? Colors, still no credit, but we'll say it is probably Mole Man Magic Marcus. That's who we'll say uh, colored this one. Edits, Stan Lee, cover price, 12 cents. Now, we open with a reminder that Professor X has been captured. Um, I like saying that he was kidnapped better. I'm not sure why. Anyway, we've got our heroes attempting to prepare the re-wrecked Cerebro in order to try and track him down. And, you know, this poor Cerebro, I tell you what, it gets wrecked, like, every time we see it. Though, maybe after this repair, uh, it'll be able to track down, like, Inhumans or Eternals or Badoons, you know? It, it seems like every time it comes back, it could do a little bit more. Anyway, Scott takes this attack and kidnapping as confirmation that Factor 3 is comprised of evil mutants. You know, just like the Juggernaut. Now, once the machine has stood back upright, uh, Beast suggests that they no longer need all of the X-Men to be there. And so Scott sends Warren and Bobby to bed, and Jean decides to head back to Metro College, where I guess she's still enrolled? Okay. Now, Warren isn't too keen on being dismissed, but Scott assures him that it's best for at least half the team to get a good night's sleep so as they can be sharp if and when Factor 3 chose to strike again. Warren apologizes, Scott accepts the apology, and this whole bit is being done just so that Jean can swoon over how selfless and kind Cyclops is and what a great leader he is. From here, we follow Jean back to her dorms, where she's met by her roommate Carol, who I don't think we've met before. Now, Carol informs Jean that creepy Ted Roberts had called for her and said it was urgent, and so Jean heads outside to a payphone to call him back. All the while, she's scared that, you know, Ted knows her secret identity and is planning to confront her about it right here and now. And so she calls, and Ted, whose head is wrapped and bandaged, Again, or still? I feel like every time we see him, he's got a bandage on his head. Anyway, he says that uh, his brother Ralphie, the former and future Cobalt Man, has been captured. He asks Gene to get a hold of the X-Men for the rescue, and then Gene gives him that whole, like, how, how would I ever contact the X-Men? And what makes you think I could get a hold of them? And Ted basically gets right down to it and says, I don't got time for this baloney. Just get the X-Men. And then he hangs up. And so Jean decides to call the mansion, which rouses Warren from his non-slumber. And minutes later, Angel and Iceman are all suited up. They're in the X-Jet, and they're picking Marvel Girl up from a secluded area near Metro College. You know, one of the many secluded wooded areas in Manhattan, I guess. Um, anyway, the jet streaks over to the Long Island Sound, where uh, Roberts Research Incorporated is housed. And I'm not sure if we're on the island or if we're in Connecticut at this point, and it probably doesn't much matter, and people who aren't from the area probably have no idea what I'm talking about. Anyway, our heroes meet up with Creepy Ted, who fills them in on the sitch. You know, Research and Ralphie done got kidnapped by... Tyrannus. Now, Angel claims to have heard of the man, but was led to believe he was only a legend. 
Tyrannus, by the by, rules the world beneath the earth, or he's in conflict or in the running to rule that world, but we'll get into it. Now, Ralph was nabbed just as he had invented yet another super cool cobalt thingamabob. It's uh, one of those Foot Clan drill dozer earth borer things that we saw a couple issues back. But this one is impervious to damage or something, which, I don't know. I mean, if you're digging deep into the Earth's crust here, being impervious to damage seems like a pretty important feature for such a device, and probably not something you'd save as part of the 2.0 rollout. (laughs) It's probably like, the first thing you do is make sure it doesn't break. Anyway, Ted says that Tyrannus and his diapered dolts, uh, they bored up from the netherworld, punched him in the face, and then left with Ralph. Now, all the while, Tyrannus spoke of his rivalry with the Mole Man for, I don't know, underworld domination, maybe? Anyway, Ted leads our heroes over to another drill dozer so that the X-Men might head on down to the underneath and rescue his problematic brother. Now, Bobby takes a look at the rig and discovers that it's only a three-seater, so old Ted's going to have to remain topside. Anyway, they load on in. They head down the hole that Tyrannus left and ultimately wind up in the massive Middle-Earth cavern. There, they're immediately attacked by the Mole Man, who, I tell you what, he's looking pretty damn fit. I mean, very lean, he's tall, it's uh, almost as though he's being drawn by a fill-in artist who's never seen him before. Uh, Maybe it's just the lack of oxygen down here that's making me see him this way, I don't know. Anyway, the Mole Man zaps at them a few times before unleashing his own diaper dolts on our heroes. A lot of diaper dolts in the underneath here, just naked... Humanoids with diapers. I guess they're not naked if they're wearing diapers, but uh, they're only wearing diapers, is what I'm trying to say. Now, Angel spears two of them in the sky here. Gene TK's another. And Bobby, well, uh, any guesses what Bobby might do? Well, if you're a uh, long-time listener or even a short-time listener, you'll know that he probably went with Iceman Maneuver A, which is encase the baddie in ice. Only this time, it actually seems to work, kinda. Either that, or we just stopped caring about the adults because the Mole Man was running away and we had to follow him. I'm really not sure why he was running at this point. I thought he had the upper hand. You know, he seems to have a a, a, a huge army, like a, a countless adults just running in. I, I don't know. Anyway, the X-Trio gives chase and happens upon the River Leith, or Lethe, L-E-T-H-E. I will probably mispronounce that every which way I can. Now, this is both a real river in Alaska, and also a river of myth, one of the five in Hades, and I think that's the one we'll go with, and, um, so I guess we're in Hades, then? Okay. Oh, well, Lethe, or Leith, in classical Greek, actually means oblivion or forgetfulness. And so, once our muties get a whiff of the Lethe mists, they are smacked in the face with some hardcore amnesia. We next shift scenes over to Tyrannus, who has Ralphie building a cobalt robot, which kind of looks like a centurion. Uh, We learn that the Mole Man has a robot just like it, only made of diamond. And so, I guess maybe cobalt is stronger than diamond? I did try to look it up. I did try to look it up, but the internet sucks. Um, you You can't go looking up any metals or gems or anything like that without getting pages upon pages upon pages of Minecraft garbage. It's like, I really want to know about the, the metals and, and, and the gems. I want to know. But uh, I, guess, I guess this is what we do. We have, the, we have the greatest resource in human history in the Internet. <laughs> I mean, these are like the, uh, the libraries of Alexandria, you know, just in digital form here. We can learn anything and everything in the history of the world that's been recorded. 
And I gotta wade through pages upon pages of Minecraft crap uh, to find out uh, if a cobalt is, is harder than a diamond. And I mean, I, I, I can totally appreciate the fact that I'm complaining about this on a comic book podcast and I'm going to populate on the internet uh, as soon as I'm done recording this. But uh, in any case, thanks, internet. Thanks. Anyway, Tyrannus decides he now wants Ralphie Boy to create an army of robots for him, which, I, I mean, why not just start by asking for an army? If you could build one, certainly he can build many. And isn't many better than one? I don't know. Uh, anyway, Ralphie activates the bot, and it springs to life. He then refuses to do any more work for Tyrannus and says he'd rather die. And Big T's really got no issue with that. He's like, yeah, that I can make that happen. That's no problem. Now we hop back over to the big old hole outside of Robert's Research Incorporated where Cyclops and Beast have arrived. And I guess Warren left a note on the fridge or something letting the guys know where they were headed. And so we've got our two remaining X-Men without a drill dozer just rappelling down into Hades. And I mean, that's one long-ass rappel, isn't it? Like, we gotta assume like hundreds of miles <laughs> they'll be rappelling? Whatever. Uh, in any event, Scott and Hank arrive at the cavern in the very next panel and start scouting around for clues as to the whereabouts of their teammates. We shift over to the Mole Man and we see his diamond android, who looks like something out of Plan 9. Oh, and he's also got the amnesiac X-Men there to do his bidding. He wants them to strike at Tyrannus, yada yada yada, he wants to take over the underworld, blah blah blah, you know the deal. Back to the boys, we got uh, Scott and Beast uh, happen upon the drill dozer, and they decide to ride it as they continue their search for their teammates. Off to the side, they see the steaming river Lethe, or Leith, uh, and thankfully decide not to get a closer look. Maybe later, though. Over to Tyrannus, who we catch in the middle of his daily drink from the Fountain of Youth. He's interrupted by a robed dolt, um, though if I had to guess this, probably a diaper under the robe. Um, but they're being attacked by a giant, stupid-looking diamond robot. That's what the, uh, the robed dolt has to say, and indeed, they are. And so, Tyrannus has Ralph dispatch the Cobalt Centurion, and we get a couple of pages of robot-on-robot -robot action. Then, the amnesiac slaves of the Mole Man, Bobby, Jean, and Warren, enter the fracas, and they attempt to take the Cobalt bot down. And, uh, well, they do. First, they blind it with magnesium, which, uh, it's a friggin' robot, right? Uh, then they trick it into falling down into a pit of lava. Tyrannus is not too concerned at this point, until the bot doesn't rise up from the hole. Now you see, cobalt's melting point is 2723 degrees Fahrenheit, where lava's temperature is only 2000 degrees Fahrenheit. So the cobalt bot should have been able to survive this. When he realizes that the bot ain't getting back up, he realizes that Ralphie Roberts done sabotaged him. T-Man goes to shoot Ralph, but is punched in the mush before he can pull the trigger. And this causes his shot to crash wildly through a window or something. There's a window. I, I don't know why. Uh, which gets the amnesiac X-Men's attention, and so they fly in the broken window, which is in a rock wall in a cavern, uh, to attack Tyrannus. At that very moment, Scott and Hank arrive at the Mole Man's joint, and they fight their way through. Scott winds up karate-chopping the Mole Man, and they take him hostage. Then they find out what happened to their teammates, and proceed over toward Tyrannus's place, so they must be neighbors or something. We get one entire panel of Cyclops fighting the Amnesiac Angel. He basically sweeps his leg, which seems like something that shouldn't work or be all that effective on a dude with wings. Hell, you know, maybe Warren's so out of it he forgot he even had him. Anyway, Scott then uses Mole Man's memory reverser gun gimmick to give the gang their minds back. 
and Tyrannus immediately gives up. Our heroes and Ralph cram all six of their bodies into the three-seater drill dozer and return to the surface. Meanwhile, we wrap up with the Mole Man and Tyrannus sitting next to the River Lethe without any of their evil memories. Well, that's where we leave it. Uh, next time out, the X-Men do their Little Miss Muffet impersonation because, uh, would you believe it? Along came a spider. But unfortunately, before we get to Spidey, we need to talk about this one, don't we? I think it's pretty safe to say that this one felt a lot like filler. <laughs> this feels like uh, when we read the Mad Merlin issue not too long ago. That was issue 30. This is issue 34, and... In both situations, we had guest artists, and in both situations, we had these sort of kind of throwaway stories that, I mean, they kind of fit, I suppose. Uh, you know, there is some Factor 3 stuff going on in the background, but boy, <laughs> it just strikes me as really treading water. Uh, it, it almost feels like a current year comic in that way. But yeah, we are really, really dragging our feet getting to this Factor 3 reveal. And like I mentioned throughout the past several episodes, I don't remember anything about Factor 3, so I'm kind of looking forward to it. I want to see what this is all about. I know they're not around for very long. I, I don't even know if they make it out of the uh, Silver Age, at least not as a unit, that is. But I mean, we will be talking about Factor 3 a lot more, hopefully, in the uh, coming episodes. So what is there to say about this one? Um, we had a guest artist who uh, was... In my opinion, a whole lot better than uh, Jack Sparling was back in issue 30. This was a... Everything looked very realistic here, almost. It felt like um, like I was reading like a, a story in Boy's Life magazine or something. <laughs> that like realistic look to it. It was pretty good, you know, it was pretty good. Not not a distraction. I wasn't distracted in any way by it, so... It was... Uh, it, it worked. And um, we don't get any credit for Inker, so I'm going to have to assume that uh, our man here did both. Then again, we still don't get a colorist credit, so maybe we can assume he did that too. As for the story, it kind of feels like there's a pattern to these books since Roy Thomas stepped in, uh, where, like, we're getting like a we'll get like a, a tradi- I hate saying traditional since the book is still so very young, um, but we'll get like a mutant-centric story, and then we'll go into a more mainstream Marvel story, then back into a mutant story, and we keep going back and forth, and I think. After the two-part Juggernaut story, which was, you know, very heavily uh, invested in the Factor 3 subplot, that maybe we're shifting back over to a more broad Marvel story with Tyrannus and the Mole Man. And the next issue, we've got Spider-Man. So maybe it's just ebbing and flowing, and it's just taken me this long to realize it. Not a bad thing in the slightest. I think just as a X-Fan of my vintage, where, you know, I came in in the 90s, where the X-Men were kind of their own thing. There really wasn't much crossover, uh, you know, definitely not the way it is nowadays. Everything was pretty much broken up into its own family, and any time a guest star would show up, it was a pretty big deal. And as, you know, fickle fans, we always think that the grass is greener on the other side, so it's like when the X-Men are really insular, um, I'm sure Marvel gets a lot of complaints about how they wish the X-Men were more invested in the main Marvel universe, and when Marvel predictably overcorrects <laughs> and has it so... The Avengers and S.H.I.E.L.D. and everybody are showing up in all these issues of X-Men and the X-Men are showing up in every issue of every other book. Then they get the complaints that, like, the X-Men don't have an identity. So it's interesting as a fan of my vintage, looking back on the Silver Age here, with all of my bias and with all of my anecdotal fandom experiences, and I can't help but look at this and think, and not think, you know, they're trying to integrate the X-Men into the 
mainstream Marvel Universe when they really were just their own thing. I don't know if that makes any sense, especially not in 1967, because we didn't have all the baggage back then, but as someone who started when I started and has the reading history and the fandom history as I do, it kind of just feels like they're forcing the X-Men out of their out of their corner, you know, and uh, I'm not quite sure how I feel about that. In some regards, it's it's a good thing. In others, it... I don't know, I just don't feel like the X-Men necessarily fit as a... as like a ubiquitous presence in the mainstream Marvel U, and um, I'm pretty sure I probably lost my point about about five minutes ago, <laughs> but... Uh, all I'm trying to say is it's weird seeing the X-Men deal with non-X-Men villains. What else we got? What else we got? We got a bit of, um, well, actually, we don't have much soap opera here. We do have kind of a shadow of a soap opera. We have Jean, who's fully on Team Scott right now, right? She doesn't seem to be pulled in any other direction. Um, she doesn't seem to have any sort of hot pants for Angel. She wasn't preoccupied by Creepy Ted when he called her and when she visited with him. It wasn't a... Uh, there was no conflict there. There was no emotional conflict like I was kind of expecting there to be since the last few times we saw them together, all Jean could think about was how she was developing, I don't know if it was romantic feelings, but some sort of a, an attachment to uh, Ted and how that even seemed to be something that Scott picked up on. We don't get none of that here, but we do get the indication that uh, Ted probably has a pretty good idea who the X-Men really are and... Uh, I suppose we'll have to wait and see to see if that develops into anything. I honestly cannot remember a single bit about it. Like I said a few episodes ago, I could have sworn that Ted was going to be the Cobalt Man. <laughs> so this is not the uh, freshest era of the X-Men in my uh, in my pea-sized brain. But anyway, I think that's probably all I have to say about this issue. I suppose I could complain some more about how we've destroyed the internet so we can have uh, video game hints rather than actually learn things, but I guess our mileage will vary on that, and uh, I don't need to uh, I don't need to rant for all that long without realizing that uh, I'd probably be pretty pleased if the next time someone Googled for the hardness of a diamond, uh, they were directed to this very episode. So uh, I'll just leave it there. Um, let's head into the, uh, the mutant mailbox here and discuss some... Uh, Glorious hot takes from the frantic ones of 1967. Now, before we get into the letters, there is an advert for the all-new, nifty, Merry Marvel Marching Society membership kit. For 69 cents, you are in. And for your 69 cents, you get a whole lot of stuff. You get a membership pin. You get an official recording of the MMMS song. Swingin' stickers of eight Marvel heroes. A nutty notepad. An assortment of magnificent mini-books. A mind-snapping Marvel pencil, majestic MMMS certificate, and a munificent MMMS membership card. And I mean, all jokes aside, that's a lot of stuff for your 6 9 cent, isn't it? That's a lot of stuff. All right, all right, let a time, let a time. We got Daniel in NYC. He's a big fan of Spider-Man and X-Men comics, but has a question about Professor X. Sometimes he's in a wheelchair, and other times he's shown walking. So what's up with that? Stan says that the uh, profs got those mechanical legs, and that he used them as recently as X-Men number 30. I don't remember that. Uh, in fact, I'm pretty sure we saw either Warren or Scott having to actually carry him. Am I wrong? I know Xavier was on Magic Horseback, and in a hovercraft for part of that issue. I don't know, if I had to guess, I'd say that Stan has probably either forgot, or didn't want to um, contradict 
our, our letter hack here and, and risk hurting his feelings. Uh, Stan also says not to expect to see the professor walking all that much in the future because it's too much of a strain. Next up, we got Michael in Memphis, who loved issue number 30 and thought the warlock was super cool. He doesn't want the mimic to stay with the X-Men. Okay, Mikey, did you happen to read issue 29? I think we took care of that. He says the X-Men are his favorites, and Stan suggests that, hey, if you like the X-Men, you ought to check out Millie the Model. He also says that he sent Cal Rankin to Abeyance, Nebraska, until he can think about what to do with him next. Stan then says, if you want to see the Mimic back in action, well, it's up to you. You're going to have to speak up and write in, because, well, Stan's afraid to make that decision on his own, lest it blow up in his face. And uh, I can see that. I can totally see that, because every time Stan makes any decision, the Shirley's of the world complain. You know, if you put Magneto in there, it's too much Magneto. You take Magneto away, it's like, where did Magneto go? It's, you just can't win if you're uh, poor Stan Lee. William in Minnesota liked seeing the Beast get so much action in number 30. And he wants to see the old X-Men villains have a reunion. Stan says, hey, you never know. And he also plugs the upcoming and eventual reveal of Factor 3 as something worth waiting for. And uh, I guess we'll be the judges of that. You know, in a hundred years when that story actually happens. Now, next we got Scott in Missouri, who is a pretty quick study. It's time to bait Stan's generosity, and he does it with gusto. Steve says that he showed his teacher an issue of the X-Men, and she loved it, and she wants to see more X-Men. And now, in order to facilitate that, he's trying to save up enough scratch to subscribe. And Stan takes the bait, because Steve's won himself a free subscription. And we also get a reminder that Rascally Roy used to be a teacher himself, which is probably part of the reason why he hates being corrected so much. Next up, we got Warren in Pennsylvania, who says X-Men 30 had potential, but ended up one big mess. I would say you're half right, because I didn't see any potential in that issue. Um, he says the artwork sucked. He didn't like that the Professor and Jean kind of hugged in limbo on page three. I'm sure Professor Xavier liked that. He then cited Scott not adjusting his visor to fire off an optic blast on page 14. Also, Scott wasn't even looking in the direction he was blasting. Warren suggests that uh, we punish our fill-in artist, Jack Sparling, with an hour of nothing-but-reading brand Ech comics. He didn't like that the warlock was dispatched so quickly, and he complains that there are too many evil mutants showing up. Dude, have you have you have you read any of the issues in the twenties? I mean, we had like one or two mutant-centric issues in that whole run. Uh, then he quotes Queen Isabella, who was said to have asked Christopher Columbus to bring back a stack of marvels from the New World. Now Stan kind of sidesteps all the criticism and uh, bellyache in here and says that he will send Queen Isabella a free subscription to the X-Men. So, uh, classic Stan response. Next up, Martin in Burbank. Now, Martin is a philosophy major at Cal State in Los Angeles, and he can say with certainty that Marvel Comics feature more philosophy than any of his textbooks. Um, what's funny is he doesn't even ask for a free subscription Because I, that sounds like something that would lead up to a Hey Stan, you got any uh, free subs lying around? Uh, he then asks if Marvel heroes believe in predestination And also, if they believe in God Oh dude um, Now Stan says that Marvel heroes believe in something called free will And then deftly dodges the question about God So, uh, good Stan answer Now we wrap up with Peter in New York And uh, well, he wants to know if we remember uh, Gene's screwdriver boner which sounded a lot dirtier than I intended. Um, well, this is more about that. Now, here's the thing. Pete doesn't think this needs a no prize. He doesn't think it needs any kind of corrections here. He thinks that this scene actually played out the way it was supposed to. 
Now, if you're not familiar with this scene or need a refresher, um, it basically goes something like this. Beast asks Gene to TK him a set of pliers because he's working on fixing Cerebro for the 88th time. Now, Gene TKs him over a screwdriver and says, here are your pliers. To which Hank says, Gene, you're a credit to your gender. Now, I mean, you can take that a few different ways here. And the way Peter takes it was uh, that Beast was being sarcastic and, and kind of sexist making fun of Jean for her limited knowledge on what a pair of pliers actually are. Which is certainly a theory. I don't know if it's the right theory, but it's certainly a good theory. Um, Stan doesn't seem all that comfortable confirming or denying that, so he basically just thanks Peter for the get-out-of-jail-free card. That wraps up the letters. Let's head into the bullpen bulletins, otherwise known as... Fabulous facts and frivolous... I, I messed it up. Let's do it again. Fabulous facts and frivolous fables for frantic fans, faithful friends, and fiendish foes. I think that's the first time I stumbled over, and I said I would leave that in with a tongue twist that stays in. If I get it wrong, I get it wrong. Now, we don't have items this time. We have a, an assortment, a, uh, just a potpourri of news and news-like things. First, a bombshell. And that is that the first ish of brand Ech is out, and Stan spends several hundred words talking about how it's going to be the greatest thing since sliced milk. Next, special. Now, this is a reminder that the king-size summer specials are still a-coming. In June, Sergeant Fury will feature Nick and the Howlers reuniting for a deadly mission in Vietnam. Then in Millie the Model, which I want to remind you is for your sisters and your gal pals, naturally, this sees Millie's friend Tony finally getting married. In July, Daredevil faces five deadly foes, and The Avengers is guest-star-heavy, featuring Namor, Nick Fury, and Hercules, which sounds like any other issue of Avengers. I don't know. August will feature Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four, but since we're running out of room, Stan will tell us more about those next time. Next is TV time, and uh, Spidey and the Fantastic Four are still on track to get those 30-minute ABC shows produced by Hanna-Barbera. And this led me down uh, quite the rabbit hole I wasn't expecting to go down here, but I did a bit of research, and the Spider-Man series will premiere on September 9th, 1967, and will run until September 6th, 1970. There'll be three seasons and 52 episodes. Fantastic Four will premiere the same day, September 9th, and only ran 20 episodes. That one wrapped up on September 21st, 1968. And like I said, this sent me down a bizarre rabbit hole of early Marvel animation, and I actually learned quite a bit. But since we're going to be getting bullpen bulletins all throughout, and probably be talking about some of these specials later, I'll save that, these conversations for then. But uh, I was actually reminded that there was a cartoon called uh, Fred and Barney Meet the Thing. The thing from the Fantastic Four and Fred and Barney from the Flintstones. That was actually a thing that existed in the late 70s. So uh, when we get to those bullpen bulletins, we will talk more about those. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. That sounds like fun. Uh, we got MMMS Madness, which is basically Stan recounting all the nifty gifties that come with being a member of the all-new, all-different Merry Marvel Marching Society, which we discussed a few minutes ago, so we don't need to do it again. And we wrap up with Stan's Soapbox, which is... Basically, a couple of paragraphs of Stan thanking the Marvel faithful for being the best darn fans in the world. Let's hop into the mighty Marvel checklist here, and we start with Brand Ech, number one. Oh boy, uh, this features the Fantastical Four, Dr. Bloom, the Silver Burper, uh, Sergeant Furious and the Hostile Commandos, a Golden Age tale featuring the Human Scorch and the Sunk Mariner, and other quote-unquote hysterical hits. That sounds awful. It sounds so bad. Um, Fantastic 465. Enter now, the accuser. And more importantly, Johnny gets a new hoopty. 
Spider-Man number 51, enter now the Kingpin. Avengers number 42, Hercules versus Dragon Man, and Giant Man versus the Avengers? Hmm. Daredevil number 30 features Thor, Cobra, and Mr. Hyde. Speaking of Thor, Thor 142 has Thor versus the Super Scroll. Strange Tales 159 has Nick Fury go to spy school and Doctor Strange meeting a new threat. Suspense 92 has Iron Man versus Half Face and Cap teams up with Nick Fury. A lot of Nick Fury. He's uh, he's getting around. Uh, Astonish number 94 has Namor versus Gnome and Dragor, and Hulk deals with a world of mystery. Sergeant Fury number 44. Well, we got a question. How did the Howlers earn their nickname? Well, you can find out here. Then into Reprint-O-Rama, we have Marvel Collector's Items Classics 10, and then Fantasy Masterpieces and Marvel Tales number 9. The Merry Marvel Marching Society gets 26 new members. Uh, none of them stand out as, uh, as being anybody we would know. But that will do it for the issue. Uh, we don't have any mailbag items today. Uh, they seem to come in waves, you know. Sometimes I have way too many, and sometimes I have none. <laughs> and uh, this is a case where I have none. But, uh... But that's okay. I, I still love you, and uh, for what it's worth, my throat has been uh, pretty raspy all day, so uh, if I can cut a few uh, minutes out of this episode, it's probably just as well. I do want to do shout-outs, though. I want to thank the folks who cared enough to spread the word about this show on various social media platforms. Over on Twitter, I want to thank Jeremiah, Dave Schultz, Joe Crawford, Ed Moore, Jacob Jones, Jason Colby, The Longbox Crusade, and Wayne Burroughs. Over on Facebook, I want to thank Andrew Franklin, Jeremiah, Walt Neeland, Joe Crawford, and Billy D. While we're thanking folks, let's hop over to the Patreon, patreon.com slash xlapsed. I want to thank Andrew Franklin, Ed Moore, Walt Neeland, Jeremiah, Jason Colby, The Scary Stuff Podcast, Jesse D. Young, Damian, Peter McPherson, and Mark Jagger. Thank you all so much for all of your support. Now, before we get out of here, I should probably tell you ways you can get a hold of me if you so desire. I'm always available. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. Shoot an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisoninfiniteearths.com, which is still still a work in progress. Um, I think all the posts are over there. I think. Um, I haven't done, like, a really, you know, good combing over of the site because, well, there are, like, 2,300 blog posts <laughs> that have been transported over, so... I gotta do a probably a one by one look to see how they're formatted, what they look like, if they make any sense, or if they make any less sense than they did the first time around. I guess uh, I can't say that that's a gig I'm looking forward to, but uh, I guess we all have our trials, don't we? But uh, Chris is on Infinite Earths. It's up. <laughs> I don't know how full it is, but uh, it's there if you want it. What's also there is our Facebook group. You can head over to Nineties X Men on Facebook to chat about uh, well whatever your heart desires. There's the Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere you find noise on the internet. And finally, once again, the Patreon is patreon.com slash xlapsed. A whole lot of exclusive content over there, and uh, much more to come. Now, with all that said, I'd like to thank you all so much for spending some of your day with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya! See ya!